Today's episode is sponsored by Brickhouse Games. Brickhouse Games is a tabletop game design and development studio that focuses on bringing new experiences to casual and hardcore gamers alike. Their latest Kickstarter campaign, Masters of Charms, is a unique set collection game for two to four players that plays in 45 to 60 minutes. It offers dynamic spatial puzzles, hidden objectives, hand management, and point salad scoring. For more information, please visit brickhouse.games. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about RPGs. We're talking about what board game designers can learn from tabletop RPG games. And we're talking to a person who I consider to be an expert in this field, Mr. Hankerin Fernell from Runehammer. Hank, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Good to be here. Really excited for you to be on the show. Uh, like I said before we hit the record button, I've been wanting to have you on for a while. You're a guy I've been following for several years, probably three and a half years at this point. Your YouTube channel at Runehammer has just been phenomenal in helping me to become a better dungeon master and your books you've written, all the content. You've put out so much content over the last few years, and it's just been amazing to, to be kind of along for the ride as, as a person that follows you and, and, you know, and uses this content in my RPG game every week. And so I'm just really excited for you to be here. And before we get into the topic, which which I'm just kind of really glad to be picking your brain about these things. But first of all, who <laughs> are you? How'd you get into gaming? How'd you get into RPGs, game design, all that kind of thing? Oh, man. Well, I, I guess it probably started uh, just as an extension of drawing. So like so many kids from my sort of generation, um, I was into like Usagi Yojimbo and TMNT. And like every kid I knew basically learned how to draw by drawing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And so I started drawing the turtles and as a strange extension of that, I sort of found out about RPGs. Um, and I found out about like rifts and GURPS and the old Palladium TMNT game. And I really didn't get it to be totally honest. <laughs> I was like either too young or just too dim witted. And I was just kind of like, I don't really understand what this is all about, but I kept going with the art and I always really liked the art in the books in the early days, but I really didn't get into like gaming, like sitting down and rolling dice till I was maybe like 13. Um, and that's kind of when that all started. And really it was just a sort of a goofy, you know, sort of just an interest I had on the side. We wouldn't necessarily even play that avidly until like late in high school. Um, and even then it was just sort of something fun to do. But after college, just completely by chance, I sort of stumbled into a video game job being a concept artist. And I had never even, I didn't even know people made video games. <laughs> it's, I just imagine they sort of would just pop out of a cabbage patch. Like I, I hadn't thought that people were actually sitting down thinking, Hey, what would be a cool looking robot for this video game or whatever. So I, I bumbled into being a concept artist. And then that's when sort of this sort of life, you know, like this kind of, you know, game design and RPG, like life kind of, uh, came my way, so to speak. So that, that lifestyle of doing art and thinking about game design and being around smarter people who are doing game design. And that sort of took me deeper and deeper. And, uh, 
I, I still think, you know, especially it's sort of at this later phase in life that like a really good game of, of like D and D or, of, you know, just a pencil and paper RPG is like one of the most pure forms of game design. And so I, I would return to it, you know, in my various, you know, forms that I took over the years as either writer or artist or game designer uh, on different projects and video games and whatnot. Um, the pen and paper, like, sort of creative process was always like core to me and was always like one of my favorite things. Cause it took me back to that feeling of like drawing the, t the turtles, you know, like the, the, the pen is so powerful when you just kind of, all you need is what you're drawing. You don't need to, you know, have a team to help you. You don't need to figure out why things aren't working. There's no technical element to it. Barely. It's just very like hands-on. So that's kind of how I got into all of it and then got deeper and deeper into it as the years went by. Yeah, gotcha. Now, as far as video games, have you worked on any games that, that people listening would have heard about or ever played? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, probably the most high profile and probably the best project I worked on in my entire career was uh, Shinobi on the 3DS. And um, that was an amazing experience to work with uh, Japanese artists and to work with Sega and to be able to work on a, a property that I loved as a kid. And like if, if 14 year old me could have known that I was going to be the lead artist on a Shinobi game, I think my head would have exploded. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that was a great experience. And that was like one of the best selling uh, games in the Shinobi franchise. So we like, we did a good job. The fans liked it. We didn't defile it. You know what I mean? And uh, that was great. That was probably the most high profile one I worked on, but I also worked like a little bit on lots and lots of games. Um, just because as a concept artist, you don't really necessarily get to, you know, take them all to completion. Um, so, you know, work on a lot of DS games and, um, little stuff worked on deer hunter for a while, which is kind of crazy. Like <laughs> I designed like a zillion guns for deer hunter and like, yeah. so it, it was kind of a, a wild ride. <laughs> Very cool. I'm a little curious why we haven't seen a Shinobi flavored or themed ICRPG or, you know, 5e content <laughs> kind of thing. Is that something on the horizon one day soon? Oh, that's a killer idea. I hadn't even thought. Of that. <laughs> and, you know, Shinobi is really cool, too, because it's kind of about like ninjas, but they're kind of like crazy ninjas. They're like, yeah. you know, there's Gatling guns and robots and like weird future cities. But then there's also like Kabuki demons and stuff like it's it's just wacky and crazy. So, yeah, it, it would be awesome at the table for sure. Yeah, and I think it really fits into your style, just based on based on a lot of the other things you've done lately. And uh, that could be a really cool thing, man. And so, uh, yeah, just keep that on the on the back burner. At put least put it on the day. list. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm sure your list only has one or two things, right? So. Yeah, yeah, everything's done. I'm out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Hey, you mentioned your creative process. This is something I love to talk to people who are just uber creative. People like yourself who write books, who do a lot of art, who create games and design games. Tell me a little bit more about your process. Give me like kind of how, how ideas start for you, like where things come hmm. from and, and then just different things that go through your mind when you're trying to create something, you know, as far as being creative and creating something that's never existed before. Give me a little bit more right. you know, insight into your process. I think if you want to talk about the starting point first, um, I think that uh, over the years, especially if you sort of live a creative lifestyle, um, that uh, there's a great skill that you start to learn about originating projects. And it's sort of this like child mind is often what I call it. And it's like, it's where you suddenly like sort of want something like you want a moment to happen or you want this kind of thing. Like you have a sort of a, you know, I want, you know, a cool chicken, a steel bikini to like lop the head off a big green troll. 
Oh man, wouldn't that be cool? And you kind of see it in your head and it's just like, what does that have to do with anything? But before you even question what it is, why it is, if it's possible, what form it's going to take. I think the skill that I'm sort of describing here is that you let yourself want that and enjoy that. And it's kind of this sort of, uh, this like honest selfishness. You're kind of like, you know, I, I want to have like a, like a ghost pirate ship with a bunch of machine guns on it. And it's like sailing into a building and then all the guys battle and stuff. And this is like, uh, you know, uh, when I was a kid, this is the kind of way I would think is like, I want this sort of scene to occur and you get your toys or you would draw it or whatever. And I think for me, that skill has just gone on and on and on as I've, you know, grown into a, what must be adulthood. <laughs> it, does, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it, but, but it's, it's this moment of like, you know, like, um, what's a good one. It's like, you're watching like uh, pirates of the Caribbean, right? You're doing a marathon, you're watching all the movies and, and you'll have that moment where you're like, I want like some more pirate stuff. Like, I want to get into this a little bit, you know, like I'm going to go put on an eye patch. You know, to me, that's like a very kid-like moment. Like, why are you going to go put an eye patch on? Like, what, what is that going to accomplish? It doesn't matter if you just let yourself want sort of silly things. And then unfortunately this comes with the second part, which is the much harder part. So you do get good at fine, you know, knowing your own impulses and knowing what you sort of want. And then for me, uh, probably one of the things that drives people crazy the most that sort of work with me or that are around me a lot is that I tend to pursue it like on the spot. <laughs> like I, I, I mean, for an example, I can never schedule anything very well. I'm really terrible at having like a to-do list or anything because I'm just following my nose around all the time. Yeah. And like, I'll be like, Ooh, you know, it's all about barbarians this week. And then like the following week, I'll be like a freaking hate barbarians, <laughs> you know, but then three months later, I'll be like, Ooh, man, I really miss thinking about barbarians all the time. And I'll circle all the way back to that. And that's kind of how I work. So some of my projects are years old and they just sort of, you know, they go into the archive kind of a little bit until I get interested in, and a lot of them just die in there. Um, but for me, this is a big part of how I do my processes. I, I'm really adamant about trying to follow my nose. And so it does introduce a lot of logistical <laughs> difficulty. Um, and it also makes me a bit of an oddball. It's, it's like why I'm not very suited to like office work and stuff is I don't, I never really know when it's going to be time. You know, it's, it's, it's somewhat capricious, unpredictable kind of impulse, but when it comes, it's like really important to me to, to run with it and play, you know, so you yeah. watch pirates of the Caribbean and, and to me, there's a, a short window there where you're really stoked about pirates and you need to go put on your eye patch and you need to talk like a pirate and you need to order like a plastic sword on Amazon. And like, you need to get into it like at that moment, cause it's going to wear off. And so. To me, that's one of the biggest parts of my process is like playing with that kind of impulse. Yeah. And that's a really, really cool way to look at it and to do things. I want to go back to something you said right at the beginning, this certain mm. phrase, you said a creative lifestyle. I feel like a lot of people want to be creative, but they haven't yet really attuned their lifestyle to be creative. They, they tried to do it in, 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 you know, here and there, they, they want to do it. They think about it, whatever, mm. but they haven't like attuned themselves fully to live this lifestyle. And I think to do that is, is doing stuff every day. One thing I've been trying to do is work on game design every single day, because, you know, I don't know what the percentage is uh, as far as of good ideas. And I guess everybody's different. You know, some people have a huge percentage of good ideas. Some people have low, I'm going to assume I have 1% good ideas and 99 <laughs> awful. 
And yeah. so that means I need to have as many ideas as possible and get into that creative mode as often as possible. That way, 1% actually turns into a, a decent number. And so tell me, give me some advice, give you know, listeners some advice as far as how do you live a creative lifestyle? I think you just tapped on a lot of, touched on a lot of things right there. It's like, just go where the note, your nose is, go with what you're excited about, get into character. That's some really good advice. Anything else as far as living a creative lifestyle, as far as what you surround yourself with, media you take in, things that you do on a daily basis, anything like that? Mm, yeah. I mean, you, you nailed probably the biggest one, which is practice. Like just if, if getting better is what you desire, um, then yeah, practice is like an essential part of the life. Um, there's an old joke that like the difference between, um, hobbies or no crafts and art is that crafters have fun. So, because, uh, anyone who's really sort of gotten into like the art of a thing, like doing a thing with, with a lot of quality and success knows that it's somewhat tormented existence. You're, you're never really happy with what you're doing. You're always pushing yourself further and further. Um, but I think just to, to get into the sort of creative life, I think probably the biggest step you can take is to make sure you have your, your, your creativity is handy. I, I think a lot of people like, um, they, they want the outcome and they do get glimpses of it, but then they have this, uh, sort of idea of inspiration or of like ideal conditions. And, and that's when it's really going to come out and it's going to be great, you know, and, and this can be a real struggle because those conditions seldom arise. And to be honest, like inspiration is one of the most annoying and elusive feelings in life. And so those two things like make that creative output somewhat elusive to you or, or it never really comes around. And I think the way you can battle it is to have like a handy, um, creative tools or a setting. So that means like, you know, whenever you're sort of in the mood, it's handy for you. Like it could mean carrying your, your doodle book with you. It could mean, you know, having your little, your, uh, like a little mini keyboard with headphones that you take with you. It could mean having a dedicated space in your house so that if like sort of lightning strikes, you can quickly go in there and all your tools are all in a big mess and you can just dive right in and it's handy. It's easy. Um, I think that it's funny, but I think that just the barrier sometimes of wondering where your notebook is, is enough to, to derail your sort of creative moment. It's a really delicate thing, you know, and, and that moment is so narrow. So if you have that handiness, I think that's a big step toward starting to live the life as you take it seriously. So you, you kind of have your tools at the ready. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I've got a sports background and the more I thought about kind of how sports and art are related, you find some interesting similarities. Uh, one thing with sports, anytime you're getting ready for a practice or for a game, a lot of a lot of athletes will try to get themselves into the zone, right? And they'll go through all these little things. They'll go through certain stretches and they'll do certain mm -hmm. things at certain times. Or if you see a baseball player, baseball is so superstitious. Like if oh, you yeah. watch a guy going up to the plate, he'll go through this little routine with his gloves and his hel helmet and his <laughs> bat and all this stuff. And he's getting into the zone to be able to hit, you know, hit a home run. And so I think art is the same way. Like what, what can you do to lower the barrier to entry, make it easy to get into the zone, whether it's you go to a certain place, maybe it's a coffee shop that, you know, get away from your house, get away from all the distractions, or maybe, yeah. you, you know, like you're saying, your, your doodle book or whatever, but doodle book, not doo-doo, doodle book might, might be what you feel like sometimes. This is a doodle book of nothing but crap ideas. <laughs> yeah, <Doodle book. laughs> that's, that's what I have. I have a doodle book. <laughs> But just making it easier to get into the creative zone, I think, just goes a long way with yeah. actually being able to find that inspiration and that motivation. Do you have anything in particular that you do as part of your creative process that like gets you into that zone? Well, you know, the, the one area that I really relate to people who, you know, are looking for a better path as far as creativity goes is writing. So 
uh, as a game designer, as an artist, I mean, I just get out of bed and get a cup of coffee and I can't even help it. I find myself sitting and painting. I, I don't even know how it happens. Like, you know, I'll just be in my pajamas and I'm like, oh, wait, I was supposed to like, you know, do the dishes and like go meet that other guy for breakfast. <laughs> like completely spaced it. <laughs> but when it comes to writing, writing is really tough for me. So I've had some success as a writer um, and I enjoy writing, but I have a hell of a time like being able to parse the details in my writing in a way where I can really carry the emotional momentum of what I'm writing. I find it very freaking challenging, even though I really want it. And so that's where I've had to develop the most specific sort of uh, zone routine, as you call it. And, and for me, that is like, I think what, if, if people follow me, like on Twitter, it's what I call the temple, which is always where I have like a beer and a quiet place to sit. And it, it can't be at home. It has to be in the pub usually. And I've got either my book or my laptop and like, it isn't really necessarily about drinking the beer. It's not really necessarily about being in the pub. It's more just, it's a mode and my brain seems to respond to it. And I can, you know, get like a three hour session and kind of nurse a beer. You know what I mean? But, but they're like mnemonic devices to, to put me into a place. And I find myself like having really killer writing sessions doing that. So, but I can really only trick my brain into being good at writing like once a week. And if I try to go two or three times, I realize how bad I am. at it. <laughs> so I kind of have to, you know, renew that enthusiasm about trying, you know, sometimes if you, if you push too hard, you know, you pull a muscle and then you just don't want to try it all for a while. So got to be yeah. careful with that too. That's a great point. And I think anybody listening to this, you know, if you haven't figured out your creative zone or how to get into it, really start thinking about it. What, what gets you in the zone? When, when do you feel most motivated or, more, or most inspired? And what do you think led up to feeling that way? And then how yeah, can yeah. you recreate that, you know, consistently? Yeah. Cause that's how you, and, and notice stuff. it, you know, like notice yeah. it and, and take it seriously. So it's like, it does matter even if it's weird, you know, even if it's a 2 AM kind of a thing and you're a bit of a nuisance to your household, <laughs> you, you might have to acknowledge that you're sort of a, you know, almost like a liminal thinker. Like you might be thinking in the early part of your sleep cycle and you have this pattern and you might just have to deal with that for a while. But if that's your magic place, then you got to find it. And if you want to be creative, you have to dive into it and play by its rules sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go into ICRPG a little bit. Index card RPG. This is one of the, the kind of your claims to fame, you know, how a lot of people have come to know who you are. You put out this amazing book. It's really just a, a really awesome streamlined system uh, kind of for D&D or just kind of any role-playing system really. So tell mm -hmm. me kind of how, tell me about the genesis of that. And I think that's going to lead us into <laughs> the bigger topic of what, you know, what game designers can learn from RPG players right. and, and game masters. Well, I mean, um, I, I've, I've kind of been writing a system just like all game masters since I started playing. It's, I think it's a fundamental part of the hobby is not only to create the content, but to want to create the game itself. Um, and so I had that going in the background. And then as the various editions of D&D &D are rising and falling and GURPS kind of came in and out of our lives and, and Rifts and uh, uh, Fantasy Hero we played for a while. And so these different sort of systems are kind of synthesizing, synthesizing and kind of kludging, you know, at our table. And so that's going on in the background. Then fast forward many years um, and I'm not quite sure when this sort of moment happened, but um, I've, I've always used index cards as like a staple of all my games. It's always been how I do monsters and 
sometimes we would like fold them and prop them and make little houses out of them or, or, you know, like I don't crumple them and it's a boulder. <laughs> I, I know that's silly, but like those, those were real things that happened that just made me always carry them. So they kind of became a part of my, my RPG creativity. It's it was like, I started doing uh, encounters and at one point I was convinced like no good encounter can take up more than one index card, you know? And so yeah. like you, you need to have these really contained ideas and I was all into it and I had all these cool Rolodexes and I've, I've just always loved it as a format. So that part of the game uh, is really literal. Like that's why I named it that it's, it's really literally tributes one of my, my favorite things, but the, the click moment that I had, it was actually uh, one of Adam Koble's early videos and it actually shows he's got a couple of index cards and he like he, he's doing something for Dungeon World and he just writes like the mountain like on an index card. And then he like on another one, he writes like a dragon <laughs> and he just like slaps him on the table. And he's kind of joking about how sometimes that's enough that can get a session going because players have this frame of reference, even though it's literally just writing on an index card with a Sharpie. And when I saw that, I realized that like, that's what I had been doing for years and years and years. And it, it clicked for me where I was like, I'm going to nab that. I, I want to, I want to be the champion of index cards <laughs> yeah. and it, it's silly, but, but it was for me, it was like that, that turnkey moment when I knew I wanted to make a more fully realized, um, RPG and I wanted to actually kind of plant my flag a little bit. Cause you know, it, it's kind of scary to to work on RPG systems over the years and then finally sort of publish one and say, this is, this is the first one I really want to put out there. And like, I know this is good. That's a little bit scary. So it took a while for me to sort of face that, that reality. And the, the group that I was playing with at the time were kind of already playing what became index card RPG as far as mechanics go. And that's how we played D and D we were already butchering D and D in that way. Um, so all those different sort of threads kind of came together and, and the book was born. Yeah, I love the book. I've been using it with my weekly game. I, I run a the tabletop RPG club at the high school where I teach here in Honduras. And what's cool is this semester, uh, we decided kind of as a group, me and this, this group of guys and girls, you know, 10th, 10th 11th, 12th graders, that uh, I was not going to be running anymore. They were going to start running games. Ah, and so yes. I've been using ICRPG, your your book, the second edition, as almost like a textbook. And so we spent several weeks. They come in, you know, we do it every Thursday afternoon. And we spent a few weeks of me up on the whiteboard going through concepts and ideas right out of the book and just putting them on the board as far as like room design and uh -huh, you know, how awesome. encounters work and tweaking you know, the tension and the, the loot and all these different things. And so really love that book. And if, if you're listening to this and you like, RPG games. I, I highly recommend go go find it on Drive Through RPG. It's Index Card RPG is a great great book. And so let's kind of jump off of that and let's get into kind of some differences between tabletop RPGs and board games. Now you've designed mm. both. You've designed you know Junked, which is this really interesting like car battle, you know, almost like Road Warrior kind of thing where you're getting yeah. cars and blowing each other up. You've got Iron Heart, which is a really cool little card game, very simple, you know, family weight card game. And so you've designed board games, you've designed RPGs. What do you, what, what would you say are the major differences in those two mediums? And then we can get more into kind of the, the design process mm. of, of, you know, differences. I mean, probably the biggest one as far as uh, that strikes me as a player is the sort of the confinement of the board game. So the, the board game does a small number of things with tremendous fidelity. Um, it's, it's almost like, um, I don't know, back in the video game industry, there was a saying like, uh, either be highly visual 
with low interactivity or extremely interactive and don't worry about the visuals. And this is kind of like, to me, explains, you know, the difference between games and movies. You know, a movie goes for the absolute maximum of visual fidelity, but it doesn't let you muck it up. <laughs> right. You don't get to yeah. sit in your chair and tell Al Pacino what to say because it's not going to be as cool. <laughs> and to me, that's a board game. A movie is a lot like a board game. It It's a confined experience that is limited in many ways, but because of those limits, it gets to lean way in. Then meanwhile, you have something like just a good old fashioned pencil paper RPG. And maybe throughout the experience, you're staring at sharpie on index cards right you're not really <laughs> getting a lot of zesty fidelity but it's okay because the interaction and the the agency is just through the roof it's it's actually so unlimited in in some play styles that you're you're altering the fabric of the world itself as you play um in some of the best games i think that happens as far as rpgs go so i think this is why board games are seeing such a, an economic boom um, nowadays is that the fidelity, uh, and the diversity is so easy to sort of get excited about, you know, you can, this is why these like Kickstarter videos for big, you know, glorious board games are just so freaking exciting. There's all these cool bits and, and it does a specific thing really, really well. And I think it's a little harder to sell like a really solid and versatile RPG because it's not about the, the shiny tokens. It's about a conceptual framework and like giving players power. And I think that's a little harder to package. And, and so to me, that's like a big part of the difference is like these board games are flashy and amazing, but, but limited. And then RPGs are almost abstract in some ways, but totally unlimited. And I think that's the fun sort of back and forth um, between the two. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good way to look at it. You know, board games are so visual in nature. And you got to think as humans, especially as men, we are very visual in nature. And so when we see a board game on Kickstarter or at the store or something like that, we're like, ooh, this looks really cool. And then we'll say, here, take my money. Whereas an RPG <laughs> is a lot more emotional. It's a lot more, it's a lot deeper. It goes a lot, maybe even spiritual in certain ways. And yeah. it's a lot harder to kind of package that and sell it, or at least in such a way that, that people really get excited about. That's a really good point. Another thing, one of the things I love, about RPGs is that every rule is flexible. Everything is bendable. Everything is changeable at any moment. Anything could be different. And yeah. it's a lot of fun to live in that world. Now, a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people want to live more inside of a box than as opposed to inside of a, you know, water from a spilled cup that just kind of goes wherever. But um, <laughs> one thing I've talked to other game designers, board game designers who came out of the RPG world. And one of the things they really struggled with was writing rule books. Because in their head, they're, th they're coming from the RPG world where it's like, you know, just make a ruling at the table. You, you, if you don't understand this, just figure it out. Whatever you think right. is good, that's cool. Well, the board game world doesn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of yeah. people would get really frustrated. And so what are some of the other things that you love as far as the differences about RPGs and board games? Anything as far as like experiences or mechanics or anything along those lines that you love as far as one versus the other? I think probably one of the things I really like about board games is they ask almost nothing of you in a lot of cases. And, and I think that makes them, you know, very, very approachable, uh, but for any type of player, you know, from casual to a crazy hardcore player, it's just so easy to just be like, okay, what is all this? <laughs> what, what are we doing? Okay. So I roll my thing and I move my little, my little guy. Okay. I'm uh, what exploring the cuisine of Japan in this game. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to want more cuisine then. Uh, 
let me draw this card here. Hey, ramen. Awesome. You know, like it's just, it asks so little of you and you just get to sort of slide along. Uh, and it's just so lubricated. And I, I think that's probably what I like about board games the most. I, I'm really not a fan of like complex board games. I really like probably sorry is my all time favorite board game <laughs> um, because it's just such, it's so, I don't know. It's just something is really divine about it. Like the, the dynamics it creates between people, the sort of revenge factor of it, but also just like you can learn it in seconds. Like it's so stupidly fast to learn. And yet then it has all this fun to it. And so I, I think it isn't all the flashiness that makes me like board games so much. It's just that you can just sort of plop in, you know, and RPGs are almost cool for the opposite reason, because they ask a lot of you and they ask you to be creative and they, ask you to maybe talk in a weird voice or do an accent or things that not everyone is really comfortable doing. Um, but board games aren't like that. Board games are just like, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I guess that also goes back into the, uh, the monetary side of things as well is, is, you know, board games maybe are a little bit for a little bit easier for people to get into. And so maybe have an easier time selling on Kickstarter and in game stores and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's get into kind of the heart of this conversation, the things I'm really curious about, I want to get through, go through like just different topics that are really, uh, really obvious in RPGs that maybe are a little less obvious in board games. And just kind of, let's talk about what game designers, what board game designers can learn from what RPG games do well. And so the first one is the experience. So one thing I love about RPG games is they just bring an incredible experience to the table almost every time where you just kind of feel immersed in whatever you're doing, whether you're on some distant planet in the sci-fi universe or you're, you're going back in time to a medieval fantasy, you know, fighting dragons and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. what can board game designers learn from RPG games as far as experience? And, and how, do you, how do you think they can translate that over into their games? Man, that's, that's a tough one. But, and I think it might vary with taste. But I think my first answer would probably be if they could learn one thing, it would be um, the sort of the less is more principle. Uh, I do see like, here's a good example is the the new Hellboy board game. Well, not new. It came out maybe six months ago. So I, I backed that one and I got this gigantic box in the mail and I'm like, oh, my God, I love Hellboy. And there's like 90 miniatures in there and they're all amazing and all these cool little parts and like the the, the visuals of it were really neat. But as I'm reading the book, there's like all this complexity and this conceptual weight to do what you can basically do like in an attack roll in an RPG, <laughs> you know what I mean? But instead yeah. you're using all these action points and tokens and sliding thingies and little doodads and all this stuff. And really all it's trying to deliver as far as experience, as you said, is I go for an attempt, I make it and I kind of whack this guy, you know, X hard, <laughs> you know what I mean? Really? That's all it was doing. But, in its effort to be original or to be sort of worth the money maybe, or just to be divergent, it had introduced all this weight. And I think that, uh, weight seldom survives at like a tabletop, uh, RPG tabletop game, you know, like heavy weighty things that are either difficult to understand or need to be looked up frequently. They kind of don't survive. Like the table will start making cuts in its game to simplify elements to fit its style. And in a board game, you don't really feel welcome to do that, you know, because that's going to muck it up. You know, like if you, if you take out like the spawning cards and zombie side, that whole game is just going to fall apart on you. So you, you can't just kind of wing it because you don't like those, <laughs> the spawn cards, you know? And so I think 
the best board games, um, a, a lot like Sorry, they they only use as much weight as they really need to get that experience that they're trying to sort of hit you with, rather than making something inordinately interesting. Because I, for me at least, the biggest barrier with board games is that moment of cracking open the booklet and being like, oh, oh my gosh, okay, this is a 40-page booklet. Uh, that also happened with Doom, you know, the, the amazing Doom board game, which is really cool. And once you sort of get it, you can flow through it. But man, that first session where you're trying to figure out how to play it and everything, I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe we spent 150 bucks on this thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, if it were up to me, I would like to see all of the visual coolness and all the sort of crazy production values continue with board games, but for them to be more stripped down, you know, where you could, uh, you know, understand them in, in two pages rather than 22 pages. Right. This is a really, really important uh, thing for game designers to be thinking about, especially when they're writing their rule books and creating, you know, more, more complex mechanisms than, than maybe they need is there are so many games already out there right now. I mean, there's a hundred games on Kickstarter every day. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're going to have somebody have to figure out your rule book and it's more complex than they want to deal with, then they're probably just going to put your game back on the shelf. They're going to take out a game. They already know how to play. They're going to play it. They're going to have fun. And mm -hmm. so you want to lower that barrier to entry as much as possible uh, while still providing an interesting experience. And so maybe you go, like you're saying earlier, maybe you lean a little harder into the board game side of things as far as the visuals and the tokens and the art and all these different things to kind of bring uh, that experience out maybe more so than trying to add, okay, whenever the die shows this symbol, then you have to look up this other thing and it does this thing over here. But if it rolls this symbol, it's got, it, maybe that's not the best <laughs> right. way to go. Or, you know. or, or like the, uh, another good example of that is the scenarios in Gloomhaven. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, when you look at this, this is a, like a magnum opus of design work about how they design all the scenarios. You got to put the tiles together and set up the monsters and then they have these behaviors and the, Oh, it, it's crazy. Anybody who's set up several Gloomhaven encounters knows what I'm talking about. But then if you take the RPG approach, all those encounters are insanely simple. They're like three spiders run across a room and kind of attack a guy. <laughs> you know, that's a, it's really what it kind of boils down to. But as you mentioned earlier, a board game is almost on this sort of presupposition that everything you need is going to be written. You will not need to be making calls or imagining the motivations of the spiders, they will operate on their own as written. And so I think that's where a lot of this weight comes in. And to be totally frank, this is why I wind up much more playing RPGs um, because I, I like all that flexibility and I like that lightness. You know, I think some of the greatest RPG sessions are played without anyone even really looking at anything like at sheets or books because they've got it. They've got a command of the, of the basics. And maybe they're like jotting down hit points now and again, but you know what I mean? They're not necessarily playing off a bunch of notes and a bunch of complexity. Yeah. Um, and, and I, at least for me and my taste, I know some people just go bonzo on like, you know, stuff like Gloomhaven. They love all that complexity. So it's just, I think it's still just a matter of taste, but just for me, I would love, you know, high fidelity games that are just lighter. And I think Zombicide is actually a really good example. Very easy to learn and very lightweight, but kind of delivers a really you know, power packed kind of board game visual experience. Right. And one thing I've learned as a game master is if you're, if the game's moving fast and players are having fun and people are making decisions and they're throwing dice and all this kind of stuff, even if somebody makes a mistake, 
in you know a rules mistake or a mechanism mistake. Well, that's not exactly how that works. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Just let Absolutely. it go. Everybody's having fun. And so board game board games sometimes can screech to a halt, because, especially in competitive games where everybody's trying to make sure it's fair and you know everybody's got the same uh, footing and all that. It's like, well, you know that doesn't work that way. Now we got to spend ten minutes looking in the rule book to find that one little bullet point that tells you oh well, in this situation it works that other way. And so I, f- I feel like just finding ways to to eliminate to streamline those moments as much as possible. That way the game does play fast and you don't feel like you have to be in the rule book. And also that your game doesn't rely on these little edge cases to be successful. That if, that if people do make a mistake, it doesn't matter. The game's still fun. Just something else yeah. to, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a great one that we'll often do like sort of a, as a cool down almost after a, a session, you know, maybe if somebody's had like four or five beers and they don't want to go home yet, we'll just play a game of like seeing who can roll three twenties first. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's the entire stinking game, but right. I'll tell you, there have been really fun rounds of that game. And then just because we're human, you start sort of packaging your role when your turn comes and you're kind of throwing a little flavor on it you know? <laughs> because that's what humans do when they're hanging out together. And, uh, I love that game. We've played that. I played that since college. I mean, I've been playing that stupid after game for geez, 25 years or what, <laughs> you know, but to me, it's a great example of exactly what you said, which is like, if the dice are tumbling around and everybody's kind of giggling, great. <laughs> you like, yeah. you got it. You got it. You got the essence of it right there. Absolutely. All right. Another thing that RPG games do really, really well is characters. And like you're saying earlier, you can go as in-depth in a character as you want. I mean, you could literally spend the entire session just creating a character. And that's a lot of times what people do in session zero, they're creating characters and figuring out motivations and how they all know each other and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of board games are character driven. You know, you've got characters that are, you're, you're the, you're this hero in the game, whether you're playing a game like Arkham Horror or Zombicide or whatever, you have a character. And so what, what can game designers, board game designers learn from the RPG side of things to really make cool characters for their board games? Oh man, you know, that that's a, that's a cool question. I, I really, really like games that have like a Yahtzee style um, pad of sheets. I don't know why, but I freaking love those. So it's like, you know, like if you have the old set of Yahtzee, there's like, I don't know, maybe 200 scorecards in a little flexible pad. And so you use up your scorecard and you just kind of tear it off. And, and I would love to see sort of board games adopt that a little more. So it's like, instead of showing me this sort of, uh, you know, nowadays there's a lot of trends with these like really uh, heavy card stock, like character cards that have little notches in them for, you know, little tokens and little plastic bits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But for me, I, I get more into it. If I get a, my own little scratch pad and I get to write the name of my little barbarian on there, you know, like, you know, I, I'm not told that I'm going to be, you know, blotar the gigantic barbarian, I get to name him Blotar myself. (laughs) And, and for me, even that small step, uh, I think gives you a lot more connection rather than sort of being handed like a full color card. Um, I think actually the early sets of mouse guard also had like a pad of character sheets and it had like a little mouse on it and you could like draw your equipment onto the little mouse. Yeah. And I just loved that. Like that really tickles my instincts. So by the time I'm done doodling around on my little pad, I'm like ready to get into whatever this game's going to be. Like, this is my, this is my guy right here. You know, <laughs> like, um, you know kind of like that old game where you would flip, uh, you'd flip the little plastic sheets around and then you would do a rubbing so you can make your own like monster superhero guy. Mm-hmm. And it was made out of like three little plastic, 
molds and you could kind of mix and match them to create a little guy of your own. And, uh, that's, that was in the early days, we would kind of screw around with that as, as part of our like rifts game, we'd make them with these silly little, but something about just doing that, you make your little guy and you're like connected to your little guy. Um, I love that too in, um, what is it called? Uh, zero frame, I think is what it's called. It's like a mech battle game where you build with Legos. So you oh, make yeah. your, you make your little mech with Legos and the Legos actually kind of represent like little, little modules that can be destroyed and stuff. And it's like your little thing you made. And I, I think a board game can always benefit from more, um, you know, making by the players. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it, especially if you have a game that is scenario based or has a campaign, you know, and you want your players to feel connected to this character is just make them more connected to it. Give them the opportunity to name, to maybe change some of the stats, you know, from the get go. Maybe again, this is a board game. And so you don't necessarily want them to have to create everything necessarily, but at least giving them some choices about what weapon you start off with, what armor you start off with. Maybe you get a certain number of points that you can buy different things from the beginning, but just let your, your players feel like they're this actual character. They get, they get a, a hand in the creation part. That's a really cool, yeah. cool way. Yeah, to like do it. A, a cool way to do it would be like legacy style. You know, some of these sort of so-called destructive games that you kind of destroy as you play. Oh, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be really cool to have like, you know, your little fantasy adventurer guy and you have like little gear stickers, little, like little equipment stickers. Mm-hmm. And you can like kind of wreck your character sheet as you make your little guy. Cause it's got stickers all over, it, you know, but yeah. that you, but you did that and you made those choices. And that, that, that to me is always a hoot. Yeah, for sure. It's actually something I was thinking about recently is um, this same kind of thing of, of creating a character, but then having stickers or at least having little cardboard you know, or chipboard cutouts of different armor or different weapons that you, like, you can just add them to it. One thing I love about video games is that when you add a new layer of armor, where you're playing Diablo or whatever, then your character changes. They're now holding that new you know, sword. They're now wearing that new yeah. helmet. And it's just, it's just cool. It's just a cool thing to add to it. That a lot of board games don't have. So how could you add it in there? Well, stickers or tokens or things like that, again, just brings the player to feel more like, you know, they're actually playing this character. Yeah. Just give me a straight up action figure. Screw it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just give, give me an action figure and a little, little bushel of like axes and swords, like the old He-Man yep. uh, armor kit, you know, where you could buy all the little accessories. Just give me that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be off on my own doing my own thing. Absolutely. Well, hey, uh, another thing, tension is one of the things that RPG games do really, really well. Creating good tension, you know, Mm. the players, they know the stakes. They know, hey, if we lose this battle, the world ends because Orcus gets summoned from the depths and he's going to take over the world, whatever. (laughs) And so tension is a really cool part of RPGs. And and it's interesting because you can kind of build it up over multiple sessions. And so it's obviously an advantage. But what can board game designers learn and bring into their designs as far as tension? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, You know, a lot of times that tension it almost builds uh, to crescendos that are not what you planned. Like mm-hmm. your, your planned crescendos actually aren't the crescendos. There's something you, you had not foreseen. Yeah. So in a board game, that's definitely going to pose a real challenge because whatever you're planning to be your crescendo, it damn well better be the crescendo or your, mm-hmm. your, your sort of tension isn't going to, to build up right. Um, I mean, we keep kind of bringing up zombie side, but I do think it does a good job um, so does pandemic, honestly, they have similar, uh, sort of feels where the board is being sort of swarmed and, and your job is to kind of, you know, sweep, sweep the board away. And there are moments in both those games where there's a surge in sort of board clutter. And that feeling of clutter is very kind of panicky. Like it, it, it's definitely not something the human brain likes is having like zillions of little things all piling up. And so you want to clean them away. And I do, I do like how the, the tension builds in those games. 
Um, but I don't know. Then on the opposite side, I think actually Gloomhaven kind of falls short in this area. It's like the, the scenarios feel so fixed in a way that you don't feel that sensation of like, oh man, what's going to happen? It's more like, okay, we got to kill these spiders. Um, and th this is a really tough one. I, I'm not sure that a, a board game could ever match the sort of the formless way in which an RPG like picks up on things that are working and discards things that aren't to, to lead to sort of new revelations and, and building this sort of feeling of dread because you're working together to take this story to its craziest possible place. I, I think that's a real friggin' challenge for a board game who's living in a fixed set of variables. It doesn't know if the stuff it's doing is going to resonate with players. Like uh, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, House on Betrayal at the House on the Hill or House on Haunted Hill yeah. Betrayal. And betrayal the, yeah. at House on the Hill, I think, yeah. Yeah, that one definitely is trying to deal with dreadful themes and with... Uh, sort of frightening imagery. But I think anyone who's played that game knows it kind of just has a kitschy feel to it. it. Like when you find the little haunted doll in the hallway or something and it's supposed to be scary, you're kind of like, okay, <laughs> all right. You know what I mean? It just doesn't have that that dread to it because I don't, it, I think it's really hard for a board game to connect you enough, you know, like this is a tough one. Good luck out there, board game designers. <laughs> like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be the guy that's like got that task. <laughs> yeah. One thing I've seen is okay, especially with games that have decks of cards, uh, is basically being able to put things in the deck. So, for instance, Robinson Crusoe, uh, it has these event cards that will happen, and it gives you a choice. And one of the one of the cards says a tiger is is around you. It's coming up at your camp. What do you do? Do you uh, basically deal with it now? Or do you wait and you put the card back in the deck and you know uh, it's going to come up again, but right. you don't know when exactly. And so now you have this tension of, gosh, I know that that tiger is still roaming around somewhere, going to eat my face off, but I don't yeah. know when it's going to happen. I probably should have dealt with it then. But anyway, And so you can kind of create some tension in those ways. Another thing I've been working on with a, a personal design is I wanted the game to feel like it was crescendoing you know, up to the climax. And so that was very difficult to do with my big hundred card deck because you never knew which cards were going to come out when. And so I just turned that into act one, act two, act three. So I took one big deck and turned it into three smaller decks. And as you get to the end of act one, then you move into act two. And so I can now affect, I can, as the designer, I can control the tension a little bit more because there's more enemies in act two, even more enemies in act three. They're harder enemies in act three and different mm. things like that to kind of create more tension for the players. But it's never, like you're saying, it's never going to meet the same as a, a longer campaign of RPG or a, a tabletop RPG where, You've been able to drop seeds, you know, along the way and really yeah. create tense moments and, and things like that. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, just doing your best to, to try, uh, especially if you have a game that that kind of lends itself to it with with the theme. You know, a lot of board games don't have <laughs> enough theme to necessarily yeah. add this kind of tension. But uh, well, you know, there I did think of an example, which is the Thing board game. Uh, you know, inspired by oh, the yeah. movie from the eighties, mm -hmm. um, and that one, just like the the film you know, involves this mechanic of not knowing who the sort of the alien entity is like being an imposter. And yeah. so you go through these different sort of events and things are sort of getting worse. And the tension that builds is it was ingenious in that one. Only when we really got a handle on the game, because we started realizing how to trick each other and how to lie. Well, you know, kind of like playing um, secret Hitler, like, you know, like after playing that game a few times, you learn how to lie very, very effectively. And, that lying, that untruth becomes the tension. 
it's like you start feeling that maybe you were wrong the whole time. Like when you guys have been ganging up on this one person and you get this sinking feeling that like the guy running to the helicopter is actually the freaking alien. And, and that has a tremendous moment of being like, no, 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 no. You know, like we've been playing for three hours. No. And, <laughs> and that is an incredible buildup of tension because of that. What you're tense about is being deceived and being wrong. And that's like not only a creepy feeling in a game, but just that's almost a, like a slightly negative feeling. Like, I can't believe it was you this whole time. You know, like yeah. that tension is very real in that game. And, um, that was a fun one. We had a good time with that one. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, hidden information, especially if you have a hidden traitor, whether you're talking about a, a hidden game like traitor, Dead of, yep. Yeah, like Dead of Winter or Battlestar Galactica or Shadows Over Camelot, any of these games where you're not entirely sure who is on your team and who's not, and maybe everyone's on the same team. You, you, that's another thing that could be fun to kind of add some tension. I remember playing Shadows Over Camelot years ago with my wife's mm. family, and there was four or five of us playing. And the whole time we're all arguing about who is the traitor, who is the, who's the person trying to make us lose. And at the end of the game, it turned out to be my wife's grandmother, who's like the sweetest old lady. <laughs> and course. she was, yeah. And she like goes to, to end the game. She puts out the last siege engine and it's like, no, 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 don't do that. We'll lose. And she says, yes, I know. And she turns over her card and she's a traitor. It's like, no, it's this really cool moment. Yeah. And so the whole game, we, no one suspected her at all. And she did a great job and it created such tension at the table. And it was just a really fun way to do it inside of 45 minutes or an hour. Right. And so, yeah, I think hidden information is another really good, good idea. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, let's go to big moments. One thing about tabletop RPGs. And now, like you're saying with tension, you never really know necessarily what a big moment is. And maybe you've got one planned and then your players, you know, figure out how to circumvent it entirely and don't even, you know, fight the dragon. They, they find a way to drop a big rock on its head and it dies. And it's like, well, that wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. And so big moments can be interesting in tabletop RPGs. But what do you think board game designers can learn about at least the idea of big moments in RPG games and kind of translate those over into their games? Well, I, I noticed that um, a lot of these bigger games, uh, like say something like Scythe, for example, um, there's there's so many little cogs and, and, and gears that are turning and meshing that you do get that like... Uh, you know, second round satisfaction, you know, the second time you play, you, you get it now and you know how to work it and you're getting cooler at it. Um, but I do think that those, those games, uh, again, kind of like a watch in a way, they don't really have this kind of, uh, spike, you might call it, you know, a spike in what's happening. It's all very sort of steady. It looks like this guy's going to do better. Okay. There it goes. Yep. All right. Done. You see what I mean? Like a, a spike to me, feels more like what no you know like what just happened we were doing so good and i think that that's a little bit dangerous for a board game designer to to play with stuff like spikes because it can make you feel like what the, i just got completely flummoxed after i was like building up my cool little empire and then you know godzilla walks out you know but at the same time i i do think that could be a way to capture bigger moments you know like a, a game like descent you know, which is a, a real slog of a game, like can really take forever to try to move through Descent. That could be a fun candidate to basically have like a Vermithrax type dragon that's sort of, you know, reasonlessly swooping around and occasionally kind of comes down low and like burns a whole part of the board. You know, you could even add something like that to something like Catan. <laughs> you know, like everything's kind of plotting at a very predictable kind of, okay, yep, I got my pig farm. 
I know what I'm doing this round. I got this. And then, you know, vermithrax comes down and you know, like fries your little farm. And then you're going to need some, you know, some mechanics to, to mitigate that and to make that fun. But I, I think actually that's kind of what's cool about the old dark tower game. I saw they're remaking that now too. Yeah. Is that some, sometimes the dark tower would like have these kind of crazier events where it would spit out a bunch of skeletons or like, you know, the, the plague of fog or whatever. <laughs> and so it was fun to have that thing in the middle of the board because you knew that it, at, oh, sort of at any moment that sort of digital dice that lived inside that fun little toy was going to smite you. <laughs> and those were almost always like the biggest moments. Yeah. I guess another thing that a lot of board game designers run into is most board games are not cooperative. Whereas most RPGs are, tabletop RPGs are cooperative. And so how do you do these big moments in such a way that people don't feel like they just got hosed by the game? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I was going to win, but then Vermithrax came in and burned up my whole empire and now I'm in last place. And that's not fun. And so I guess yeah. you got to figure out how to kind of balance out, you know, making sure everybody's getting hit. Everybody has the opportunity or at least has the opportunity to mitigate getting hit. Uh, and, and so even if you do get hit, well... You, you chose this. You chose not to protect yourself with archers from the dragon. And so then when the dragon came, it burned all your stuff. Uh, but I think, yeah, just having these cool moments that happen that are maybe unexpected. You know, maybe maybe it means, I've seen some Euro games even, have like a little deck of event cards that are optional. So if you don't want to use them, you don't have to. But if you right. want to, then different things happen throughout the game at different moments. You turn over the card. Maybe, oh, okay, the plague attacks everybody and everybody loses two workers. Or, you know, something like that. But you can have mm -hmm. these moments to kind of mess with the game and make it a, a little less you know, linear, so to speak, and maybe more interesting. Yeah. The way that I tried to do it in, uh, in junked was fun to watch, uh, players goofing around with, because whenever you get blown up, which is called junked in that game, whenever you get destroyed, you actually join the enemy. So all the destroyed players wind up on basically on a big team trying to kill the last player. That's really how every session of junked goes. And on certain occasions, lots of players will get blown up in one round. And so in the following round, you suddenly have all these little ghost biker guys going the opposite direction of all the cars. And they're all like on a suicide mission. And it, the, it can sway so quickly with such a shock. Um, and then what's fun is that the majority of players in that situation get the delight of smashing the minority of players. And it just, they felt like they were losing last round. And now they're the ones like cackling with, you know, evil sadism. And to see that flip happen in some of the junked games was really fun. Like it would be really violent and other ones, like it was very, very sort of predictable, um, like to see them go one by one. Um, but seeing players turn into the villain uh, to me is always a real, a really good time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And this is a, a great way I've seen some games get rid of the idea of player elimination. You're not eliminated. You you just become the villain. You become on the other side yep. and you can maybe even still win. I've seen some games where, you know, you could still potentially win might be harder if you've been eliminated early because you're fighting for the, the evil side or whatever. And it reminds me of a Mario Kart Super Nintendo where whenever you got eliminated from the, the multiplayer, then you became like a little driving bomb. And so you yeah. can go find that person that blew you up and you can blow <laughs> them right back up. And so at least you get to have this kind of fun moment at the end. You're not going to win, but at least you're going to help somebody else lose as well and, and be part of that. Yep. All right, let's talk about storytelling. Now, this is something tabletop RPGs just have an incredible advantage over, you know, just mainly because of the amount of time, the amount of content players typically go through with these things. You can just have so much story Inside mm. of a session, a lot of times sessions are three or four hours versus a board game, which maybe a three or four hour session for one game is maybe a little too long for a lot of people's taste. Yeah. And so how how can a board game designer bring 
the just the richness, the wonderfulness that is storytelling out of an RPG game and inject it into their board game. I think uh, that's that's another tough one. These are doozies, I'll tell you. But um, <laughs> I, I think that it would be cool to see some GM style encouragement and maybe even like methods included in say a, a board game rule book. And so what I mean by that is like, uh, it might help to, to capture some of the story, not what's happening in the game, but how the communication is happening uh, above the board. And it would be cool to see a, a board game rule book say like, you know, you can talk in a, in a voice, like you can read this wacky text in a crazy British accent, you know, and like, uh, actually, I think there is, there are hints of this in, um, it's sort of secret Hitler, honestly, has a little bit of this, like secret Hitler sort of invites you to, to, to role play a little bit, not just to play the game. And it all begins with that crazy beginning. Like, you know, you, you listen to the, how to play thing by Will Wheaton when you play secret Hitler and the way that everybody sort of closes their eyes together and like does the thumb thing and everything, it, it already feels like you're sort of in that story, even though that game has almost no story, but it's the, the sort of the behavior, um, around what's happening. Like, I think anytime you have a rule book that tells the players, like anytime you talk, you have to talk in a funny accent or you have to, you know, whatever. I think that's a start to get the story to be in the player's heads rather than down in the game. Cause I don't think you want the story to become another clunky element, another thing you need to, to do or worry about. Um, but that's, man, that's, that's a pretty small step. I mean, I'm not quite sure how you could ever get that feeling of like, this is our story. And this is like my story, you know, like even with yeah. huge lumbering giants of games, they, they can't do that magic because they still live in that delivery. They, they deliver their experience rather than asking you to make it. So man, that's a doozy. I, I would like to hear, I can't think of like, it's taking me a few minutes to think of like good examples that answer these challenges. Cause these are like, these are real tough. Yeah. One thing that just came to my mind and as you were talking about Scythe is so the event cards in Scythe, you know, one, the art is phenomenal. So you can kind of feel like you, you kind of in your head, imagine what the story, what's going on just based mm -hmm. on the artwork in these yeah. cards. And then it gives you these different options and you can kind of imagine what's going on. What's what part of the story is happening based on, okay, are you conscripting more people into your army? Are you doing certain things to get popular? Are you stealing somebody's mech, you know, to get this other mech in your army? And, and so you can kind of play out the story through mechanisms and like through what's actually happening in the game. Or maybe it's just through like flavor text, uh, you, you know, Magic the Gathering. It's a very mechanical game, but it has all the flavor text that kind of go along with each card and maybe give you a little bit of story and things like that. Or even at the beginning of a rule book, you know, kind of introduction, the opening paragraph that has nothing to do with the game necessarily other than just telling you, hey, what's happening? Who are you? What's going on thematically? You know, okay, this is the war between this faction and that faction. They're fighting over this planet, you know, over the unobtainium or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, and then how's the, here, here are how the mechanisms work out. And so I think there's little, little ways you can do it. You're never going to reach the same pinnacle of storytelling as an RPG, but maybe you can do it in small ways. And you really just, like you were saying earlier, lean into the artwork, lean into like the visual side of things, and then just drop little seeds of story into people's heads for them to like play it out through the mechanisms. Yeah. And one, one thing that Gloomhaven does good when it comes to story is the feeling of moving uh, into new environments. So a lot of board games, because of the nature are sort of single locations, you know, like even Scythe, which is a quite an expansive conceptual game. 
you're kind of in that, that theater, you know, throughout the experience. And I do like in Gloomhaven how, because there's so much like, uh, you know, little fittable tiles, you do go from the jungle to the cave, to the swamp, to the castle, you know, to, and, and it feels like you're moving through a larger myth rather than living in one little arena. Um, you know, like, and nobody's more guilty of that than, you know, something like zombie site, which is like a few city blocks and that's where you live. You know what I mean? So the story is not going to move beyond that setting. And, uh, I think films, you know, that are try to do like the whole film in one little setting, they suffer from the same problem. Like you start to get this weird, like hazy feeling like time isn't passing (laughs) because the whole film is being shot, like in this one, you know, basement or whatever. And you're just starting to get a little crazy, you know? So I think moving from, from uh, space to space or from location to location in a significant way is another, a good way to make it feel like actual time is passing. Yeah. That's another really good point. All right, let's move over into mechanics or mechanisms. We talked about this a little bit uh, earlier in the show, as far as die, die rolls and stuff like that. Any other advice on taking some of the ideas about how mechanisms work from RPG games and bring that over into board games, whether it's, you know, weapons and armor and health or dice rolling, any of those kind of ideas. Wow. So how do you, how do you get some of the, the tastiness of RPG mechanics onto a board game? Um, well, I guess, man, that that's another tough one without just sort of aping, you know, that would be the easy answer. You just kind of ape what your favorite, uh, you know, like you take, I don't know, edge of the empire and you just kind of ape those, those cool kind of custom dice, like in Genesis, and you just kind of throw that in your board game. That would be the easy answer. Um, but I think something that RPGs do really well is they they make you excited to find the next mechanic. So uh, what would be an example? So an example could be like a swarm of insects and you guys are running around with your swords and stuff and you're used to like, I don't know, lizard men. And so lizard men involve getting, they stab them and you kind of do hit point of damage against them. But then a swarm of insects is more like it flies past you and you need to duck. And if you don't, it hurts you. It's like, totally different mechanically than stabbing a lizard man. Um, so I think, and you'd have to be very careful with this too, because in the board game, you do need to cover all the edge cases. So you maybe could develop a set of, you know, like a half dozen of these key sort of mechanics that the players are going to need to learn. So there is like, you know, the single combatant mechanic set, and then there's the swarm mechanic set. And then there's the, I don't know, poison gas. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what hell these characters are going through. This is terrible. <laughs> um, but basically sort of cherry picking some of the highest contrast mechanics that you find in an RPG session and then like importing them, stripping them and making them focal. I think that could be an approach to start to get there. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. Something I've been working on lately. I've been working on a, uh, a card game that's fantasy based. And so you you want your monsters to feel different. Like you're saying, now in a, in a tabletop RPG, it's a lot easier because, you know, the, the game master can do a different kind of voice for different kind of monsters or different, you know, leaders and things like that. Uh, there's all sorts of magical spells that, you know, are in all these different books that your, your game master can figure out and throw at you and have a lot of fun. But in a board game space, you have such strict rules and strict, you know, things that you're kind of living inside of. And so I've come up with basically icons that mean different things. And so this this bad guy, okay, he does fire uh, damage to you sometimes. And so when that icon, when you get hit by that, 
then all your charisma roles going forward are lowered because you're burned and people don't want to look at you because you're hideous. <laughs> right. But then, you know, a spider might poison you and poison is going to work differently than being burned. And so just trying to figure out small ways to make the monsters just a little bit different, even though at the end of the day, they're just doing one bad thing to you. And, and maybe it's, you're losing health at a different rate based on certain things. You know, when you're mm -hmm. poisoned, it's different from bleeding or whatever, but just given a little bit of variance to make the, the monsters or the bad guys seem different. Uh, I, th I think so. A really, cool way uh, to do it. And so, yeah. And then also, like you were saying earlier, just the, the dice and really figuring out, okay, do I need to roll four times to do this one attack action? You know, whereas an RPG, it's like, all right, I'm going to roll to see if I hit and I'm going to roll damage. All right. And some, some RPG games is just one roll, you know, just make it even easier. Yep. And so how do you streamline that? Are, are you, do you have all this complexity for the sake of it? Or does it really add to the game? Does it really make it more fun? I think it's just always something to come back to. Yeah. And I think the, the creative advice is, something that I'm like kind of going through right now with my little pixel art card game that I'm finishing up is like, if, if something in what you're doing feels cooler and like you want to do more of it, I think as the designer, especially like as you're developing a design, like you can't turn away from that fact, even if it scrambles all your work up and makes a big mess of your design. If in the case of my little um, pixel art game, it's you know, like little kind of, uh, seven seas kind of feeling. And like, we realized that we, we wanted to move our boats around a lot more than we wanted to like harm each other and take each other's treasure and stuff. But there really were no good mechanics built around our like basically sailing, you know, but it's kind of, you're just playing cards in front of you and, uh, it kind of scrambled the entire design. Like it almost took me back to square one. But if you face that, you know, as the designer, if you just acknowledge, oh man, this is, I did not count on this being the, the core of this. It's going to, you know, those, those effects are going to be wide reaching in your design. And I just think it's important to, to face it, to just confront it openly rather than be like, eh, that's okay. You know, we'll stick with the looting mechanic, you know, <laughs> and then you're not going to get as, as awesome of a game. Yeah, for sure. Some of the best creative advice I ever heard was the obstacle is the way. Don't try to go, you know, away from it. Go through it. Figure out what the obstacle is. Go through it and lean into it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Last one. Let's talk about theme. You know, RPGs have incredible theme where you're talking about cyberpunk, where you're talking about, you know, fantasy, where you're talking about sci-fi, whatever. Really amazing theme comes out in these games. And so how, how can a, game, a board game designer bring that over into their board game? What are some things? What would be your advice as far as thematically what they can cross over into the board game realm? Oh man. Well, I, I feel like nowadays more work goes into the box, um, than other elements. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, I, uh, I really liked when you have, uh, a board that is, uh, it's, I, I think what I've called it is like the campfire effect where you want to sit around it and stare at it. And that gives you a context for your sort of social gathering. And I do think like, this is probably obvious to, to board game developers, but like the imagery and the feel of that board is, is huge. And to me is more important than the box by far. It's like sort of what you're putting your mind inside of. And, and that's, this is one more case where Gloomhaven is, is brilliant. It's really fun to look at it and it doesn't have almost anything to break you feeling like you're looking into a little world. You know, and I, I really, really like that. Whereas uh, a board more like, you know, that's sort of cut into segments and stuff with, you know, lines connecting and little cells and all. To me, that that uh, 
can dilute the theme because I feel like I'm looking at a diagram or something. Um, so I know maybe your game needs that factor, but, uh, I guess this is my answer is like the, the best way for me to build theme is, is like that board is like your, your window into the world. And you know, an odd one that's really good at this and you know, getting to be a little repetitive here, but it's secret Hitler, like the materials and the look of secret Hitler totally puts you in this thematic world that you didn't even thought, think you knew about. <laughs> but you can kind of intuit it just from the way that everything looks and feels like you you're in there and it's almost like it's it's a an artifact from that world that's in front of you rather than a fictional portrayal of the world if that makes any sense and it's like makes that theme just hit so hard like i absolutely love the materials in that game like uh, unpacking that game is just a sublime a sublime pleasure um, so I guess that being my answer is like, uh, maybe go easy on diagrammatic data on whatever your core visual is and go stronger on treating it almost like terrain in a way, like making a, uh, you know, a, a visual that can suck you in and make you there rather than like, this is kind of a giant rule book, you know, which is a lot of game boards are like that. They're kind of like big rule book looking things. Yeah. Um, so I guess that would be kind of like my answer, like, like imagine Catan, but with like the, the sort of rendering style and the detail of something like Gloomhaven, to me, that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think another place is like miniatures or anything that can really bring out the theme of this giant monster or this really cool hero. Like you're saying, the terrain on the board, anything that you can do visually to kind of draw the theme out. Because maybe you don't have as much time as an RPG game or you don't have as much uh, content as far as the storytelling, the reading, different parts of it. You know, you don't have a game master there using all these adjectives and all these cool, <laughs> you know, visuals, not visuals, but like spoken word kind of things to bring yeah. out the thematic elements. You have to lean a little harder into that uh, from how the game looks and the artwork and the, the miniatures are things along those lines. Yeah, Definitely. and like some of the legends in this in this category are like the Dark Tower yeah. um, or uh, Escape from Fireball Island. Mm -hmm. Like... That game is just hilarious with how far it leans into its theme. It's just, it's it's so far into its theme, you actually rely on where the little marble is going to roll down the little thing. Like, it's an actual mechanic. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's how seriously they're taking their board. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, anything else you've learned in your own board game designs, your own card game designs that you kind of brought over, you know, these different ideas from tabletop RPGs? Well, I mean, just something that's, new to me recently is still a little bit on my mind. So it kind of pops in my head when you ask that. And it would be uh, from a, one of my recent releases. Uh, instead of doing the art, I just, I took on the, the daunting, honestly, difficult project of finding um, public domain art from like master illustrators from two and 300 years ago. And finding material that looked like it fit exactly with whatever's being written on that page and finding it in high res and making sure it's public domain and stuff like that. This was like a huge undertaking. Um, but I was so happy with the results and I think that could be something that is a little bit unexplored, uh, in, in board game world right now is, you know, actual historic artwork, but it can't just be a hodgepodge. It still has to sell, a unified idea. And this is where the research gets so difficult. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of public domain, like etchings and 
and old illustrations and stuff. And it can be very dizzying and kind of gets in a way like boring and frustrating. But I, I think it'd be cool to see a game that was made with actual historical artwork uh, that reinforced a theme in some way. I'm kind of I'm kind of a little bit tickled by it right right now because I just finished this last release and used all you know master artwork and it was just really fun to to challenge myself to be like I want a picture of like a, an old wizard talking to a knight right and to just want that in your head and then to go find it in the world of like the history of illustrative art and stuff that is no this is no small thing you know it's very difficult rather than just making the damn art <laughs> It's a feel that I haven't seen that could be really cool. Yeah, definitely. The only game that comes to mind is, this is from a guest, I think uh, his name, Dan, Daniel Aronson. He came on a while back and he did a game that did really well on Kickstarter. Uh, I think it was called The Island of El Dorado. And so his game is all about the the time where, you know, explorers from Europe were coming over to the Americas, to Central America, and they were searching for, you know, all the different artifacts and trying to find silver and all these different things. So obviously, there's a lot of art from that period. And so he just went in the public domain and found, you know, art that was kind of similar for the different explorers and the different areas and things like that. And cool. one, it looks really good. Uh, two, it saved him a good bit of money because he didn't have to go out and find an illustrator to, to, you know, paint all those things. And so that, but yeah, it's a very interesting way to do things, but a huge challenge to find stuff that matches, you know, they can kind of go with each other without feeling out of place, you know, and that match exactly what, what you need. But that, yeah, that is a really cool, cool idea. Well, Hank, this has been great, man. Any kind of closing thoughts, mm. any kind of final ideas to leave listeners with as far as, you know, things to bring over from tabletop RPGs into board games or even just something creative you want to share? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, we're definitely in uh, an interesting time right now to be thinking about this kind of stuff. Like uh, everybody knows we're in the, the kind of the golden age, especially of board games. Um, I mean, uh, I think RPGs are, are popular certainly right now. They're definitely like sort of getting a lot of attention, but I don't feel they're getting as wild an explosion of, uh, you know, like innovation and just downright crazy uh, as board games are getting. Board games are just like, I mean, it's just a wildfire right now. It's just bonkers. <laughs> like it's very hard to keep up with. So I think the challenge for a designer out there is to, you know, stick to, you know, the, the older method of, you know, like tried and true kind of build it with post-it notes and build it with torn up pieces of paper and Play-Doh and, and then ruin it and, and question it and wreck it and do it again. Um, rather than, you know, be swept up in this a little bit. And to me, this is what I feel a little bit like I have to be honest. I was like sort of burned by the Hellboy board game. I felt like it had been put together, produced and sold. You know what I mean? I, it did not feel like, you know, a lot of table time had made it elegant. Um, and, and I think that's probably the hardest step in, in a world where Kickstarter is so exciting is to, to come up with a design and then face the far longer and sometimes slower, more frustrating, uh, sort of chapter, which is like play testing it to the extreme and like scrapping it and remaking it and, and seeing where it leads you. And I think if, if this was applied, I think we'd see, you know, just better design overall. Um, so in a way, like the, the golden age and the sort of the, the, the crazy explosive growth of board games, you know, it's nothing but good. But in another way, I, I feel there's, it's just, there's so much excitement and popularity around it. I haven't had as many um, like recent ones where I'm just like 
this is my favorite. You know what I mean? Like where I'm really fanning on it uh, because I get that kind of odd feeling of like, oh, this is kind of strangely complicated or like this is brilliantly created, but man, I do not have the energy to, to play this behemoth, you know? Uh, Kingdom Death was kind of like that. I know a lot of people like that, but to me that was just like, oi, oi, oi. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. It's it's a very, we're kind of, uh, we're past the beginning of this explosion. You know, I think it, this explosion kind of began maybe six years ago or so. It really started catching momentum and now we're kind of in the middle. So I think it's going to be interesting to see where where all this goes and like where all this popularity goes and if it'll last or if it's been a flash in the pan, it's kind of, we're at an interesting time in the hobby. That's for sure. Right. I completely agree. Well, Hank, where can people find you online? Patreon, YouTube, all those places. Yeah. I, well, I did really good with uh, the word Runehammer. So if you just search Runehammer on Google, you'll basically get um, my hub site, which links to everything I do, um, novels, YouTube, uh, Patreon and all that stuff. Um, and then you'll probably also notice when you Google Runehammer, you'll find we have some forums. Um, I do run a, a Patreon as well. Um, and we keep that real flat. So everybody gets everything, uh, on my Patreon except one little gate, which is, um, our discord server. So we do have like a private discord server for the higher tiers and stuff like that. But really the word Runehammer will, will lead you down my entire rabbit hole of craziness. I kind of have a good corner on, <laughs> on that word. So uh, if you just look that up, you'll find all my silliness online. Awesome. And that, you know, I've been following you for quite some time. I think I said that earlier. I've been a Patreon member for a while, really loving all the content that you put out uh, monthly, whether it's podcasts or different modules for RPG games or, you know, new ideas, different things along those lines. So I really appreciate all you've brought to these different hobbies, board gaming and RPGing, and uh, really excited about, you know, what you have uh, coming up here in the future, especially that Shinobi game that you're going to work on, you know, here in the next <laughs> right, right. day or two. <laughs> but I really appreciate you coming on the show and a good luck with all those things and everything else you got going on right now. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?